Last week we came through chapter 14, and we saw this group of 144,000 saints standing on Mount Zion with the Lamb, Jesus Christ. It said that they sang a new song that no one else could learn. And a series of several angels brought proclamations to the earth. These were proclamations of judgment against men, against Babylon, against the worshipers of the beast. And there was a word of encouragement to these tribulation saints, and a reaping of souls was foretold. And finally, there was this brief and fleeting image given of the battle of Armageddon that everything culminates to when the armies of Antichrist will come against the armies of Jesus Christ. And that brings us into the shortest chapter in Revelation, chapter 15, which we're going to get through today. And although it's short, it holds some very important truths for us. This chapter introduces the bold judgments to the reader which are the last series of seven judgments that are poured out on an unbelieving world. And it is in these bold judgments that the wrath of God will be completed, brought to finality. If you remember in chapter 10, verse 7, when the angel declared that there should be delay no longer, but in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, When he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished. There's a finality there as well. The seventh angel that's referred to here is the last angel to sound his trumpet in the trumpet judgments, which preceded these bowl judgments. This last trumpet actually ushers in the bowl judgments. It's sort of like a firework effect. We saw in the beginning the seal judgments. The seals are broken open one by one. The seventh seal is broken, which is a signal to the seven angels with the trumpets to begin their sounding. The seven trumpets go off. On that seventh trumpet, that's a signal to these angels to come out of the temple, receive the bowls of the wrath of God, and begin pouring them out on the earth. Like a firework shoots up, bursts into several pieces, seven this time. And then one of those pieces bursts into seven more pieces. And it's a compound sort of flow to these judgments. The bull judgments being the last and the final judgments. Revelation 10.7, which I just read to you, and Revelation 15.1, seem to tell us that these bold judgments are the completion of God's wrath and there's a definite finality to them. Verse 1 here in chapter 15 says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the last, the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. The wrath of Almighty God is the major scene the major theme that we'll see in Revelation 15. And God's wrath can be hard for us to grasp if we've grown up with the idea of a God who's unconcerned with our sin, who allows us to indulge in some certain sins, and a God whose love outweighs his holiness. It can be difficult for us to grasp the wrath of God if that's the view of God that we've grown up with, because that is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is loving, but he's also just. His holiness does not outweigh his love, and his love does not outweigh his holiness. They work in perfect unity together. And because he is holy, He cannot condone sin of any kind. Doesn't matter what kind of sin it is. Sin has to be dealt with in the eyes of a holy God. And because we've all sinned 
and fallen short of the glory of God, you could say that we're up a creek without a paddle. There is no way that we can reconnect what we've lost. Our sin is completely deserving of God's wrath. And being a holy and just God, that wrath must be meted out. Now, this problem can be narrowed down to three basic alternatives concerning God's relationship to man. What's the first thing that God can do? Well, he could indulge our sin and allow it to continue forever. But this doesn't match up with his character. That's not who he is, which actually means that he cannot do this. Yes, there are things that God cannot do. He cannot act contrary to who he is. He cannot indulge our sins. Well, so much for number one. Let's talk about number two. He can force man to love him, to obey him, in a forced kind of relationship. Now, of course, real love is not forced. If it's forced, it's not actually love. He has to give us a choice for there to be a loving relationship involved. So if man were forced to love God, it wouldn't be love anyways. He doesn't want a forced relationship with you. He wants a choice. He wants you to make the choice to love him, to obey him. Well, there goes number two. Number three. God could choose to withdraw himself entirely from his creation. And we can't even begin to fathom the ramifications of God's complete withdrawal from his creation. We cannot imagine that. Colossians 1.17 says that in Christ, all things consist or are held together. He is literally holding all of creation together right now. Every atom wants to fly apart into oblivion. Jesus Christ is holding every single atom in his creation together. And if you don't have a strong background in physics, you probably don't realize the true literal sense that Colossians 1.17 is speaking of. Literally, we are being held together. If God withdrew himself from that act of holding everything together, there would be nothing. Everything would fly apart into innumerable pieces, and there would be nothing. Well, that wouldn't work too well if he wants to have a relationship with us. But thankfully, before God even initiated his creation, he already knew that Adam would sin. He knew that humanity would be cursed, and he knew what it would take to redeem his creation. It would take nothing less than the death of God to redeem his creation. A lamb had to be offered to atone for the sins of the world. And that lamb, Revelation 13, 8, tells us, was slain from the foundation of the world. Before God created anything, when he alone was enough in and of himself, he predestined that he would make that great sacrifice for the ones that he was about to create. That's the fourth option. The only option that ends with you and him in eternity together. That is, if you accept the gift that he's extended. And you may be thinking, well, why would he even bother creating us if he already knew we would blow it? And that's the big question. You know, that's what we, we ask. 
How could first an almighty God demonstrate his power? Creation. Creation declares the power of God. Romans 1.20 says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Creation declares the glory of God. So how could an infinite God demonstrate his infinite knowledge? Well, we can only begin to imagine infinite knowledge. But we can begin to to understand it. Not fully, but we can begin. Infinite knowledge. Everything that there ever is to know, ever was to know, and ever will be to know, plus all of the other scenarios that could have been that weren't. Infinite knowledge. But here's the kicker. How does a loving God demonstrate his infinite love? Not through creation. Not through our own understanding. What about a situation in which the only way to save men would involve the death of God? Would that demonstrate his love? Yes, it would. If he had to sacrifice something so dear to himself for us, that's how you demonstrate love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We all know that verse. John 3.16, probably the most quoted verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Anytime God wants to prove his love for us, he points to the cross. Have you noticed that? He doesn't point to your new Porsche. He doesn't point to your trophy wife. He points to the cross. Because that's how he's demonstrated his love. God isn't just omnipotent and omniscient. He's also a loving God, and he chooses to reveal himself this way. Now, let's read Revelation 15, and we'll go back through it and look at the wrath of God now. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous. This is John writing. Seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who have the victory over the beast, over his image, and over his mark, and over the numbers of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. After these things, I, John, looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. And out of the temple came the seven angels, having the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, and having their chests, their chests girded with golden bands. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. A strong picture of the wrath of God. John says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great 
and marvelous. This is now coming into the last of these signs that John is given in this parenthetical portion of our text. And chapter 15 is, for lack of a better term, a behind-the-scenes view of what's going to happen in chapter 16. In chapter 16, we see these bowls poured out on the earth, and it gives us details as to what these bowls bring onto the earth. Chapter 15 is right before the bowls are poured out. It's a prelude. It's leading up to the pouring out of the bowls. Chapter 15 is showing us what's happening in heaven right before God's judgment is completed. Seven angels having the seven last plagues. Again, last. There's a finality here. For in them, the wrath of God is complete. And again, I will reiterate that these are the last judgments that must be poured out on an apostate world before the wrath of God finds its completion. And this must be done, as we'll see in a second. To believers, though, the wrath of God has already been settled on our account. There is no more wrath that we are set to face. If Jesus is the Lord and Savior of your life, he has taken God's wrath for you. He said, it is finished. He didn't say, oh, it's halfway through. We're almost there, guys. No, it is finished. He bore the wrath of God so that we could be counted blameless. There was a finality to that, no doubt. And there is no more wrath that must be dispensed to one who has accepted Christ. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 God did not appoint us to wrath. But to an unbelieving world who has consciously rejected Christ, that's who he's dealing with. Remember in chapter 14, there was already an angel sent out to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people to preach the everlasting gospel. Everyone at this point has heard about Jesus. Everyone has the knowledge that it takes to be saved. But they don't have the heart that it takes to be saved. Everyone knows, but not everyone believes in that sense. Verse 2, And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who have victory over the beast, over his image and over his mark, and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. Everyone in this multitude has harps of God. Harps are already sounding pretty nice, but I wonder what harps of God sound like. That's got to be something next level. It's interesting that there's only two instruments named in Revelation, trumpets and harps. And harps are the only musical sort of instrument. The trumpets are really just used for judgment. They're signaling that something is about to happen. Harps are the musical instruments of heaven. So I'm looking forward to that. I don't know about y'all. Harps with a, a great multitude standing on this sea of glass mingled with fire. These tribulation saints all playing their harps. Now, this sea of glass and mingled with fire, we already saw a sea of glass in Revelation. And I have a tendency to think that this is the same one. Previously in Revelation 4, 6, it said, 
before the throne, there was a sea of glass, like crystal. This sea of glass seems to be positioned in front of the throne of God in heaven. And there also seems to be a parallel between this sea of glass and the bronze laver of the tabernacle, that washbowl that was set in front of the entrance to the tabernacle and the temple. Now, we do know that these earthly sanctuaries, the tabernacle and the temple, were just models of what actually exists in heaven, the more real tabernacle, if you will. And the bronze laver is set outside the entrance to the holy place, the first part of the temple. The priests would have to wash themselves in this bronze laver before entering the tabernacle to carry out their duties. Ephesians 5.26 gives us another interesting bit of insight in talking about Christ's relationship with the church. It says that he might sanctify and cleanse her, the church, with the washing of water by the word. So now we've connected the idea of washing of water with God's word. The church, and by extension individuals in the church, should be washed by the word of God. While they're on the earth, these saints are washed by the word. In heaven, they will stand on the word, on this sea of glass. Over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass. Washed by it on earth, standing on the word of God in heaven. It's a very interesting picture that we get tucked away here in Revelation. In chapter 4, this was just described as a sea of glass. But here, it says it's also mingled or mixed with fire. Now, those are two things that don't mix well on earth. And there's something about the, the physics of heaven that are different from here. And I think everyone would agree with that. I can't imagine this sea of glass, which also looks like crystal. It's clear. The flames of fire are sparkling underneath it. I'm sure that this is a remarkable scene. This multitude is spread out over the sea, standing with hearts of God, playing a song that we'll look at in a second. Can you imagine being John, having your eyes opened up to see this? It's no wonder that Paul didn't even want to try to write down what he saw in the third heaven. And those who have victory over the beast, over his image, over his mark, and over the number of his name. We do need to realize who this group is. And these are the saints who have victory over the beast. They have lived during the tribulation, and they've witnessed horrific things. And this same group is mentioned several times in the Bible many times in Revelation, um, also in Daniel. You've got Revelation 7, 9 through 17, 12, 11, 13, 7, 14, 12, and 13, Daniel 7, 21, and 22. These saints have more than likely been martyred for their testimony of Christ. Let's see what they sing. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, 
and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. It says they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. And we'll look at what they said here in a second, but what did they not say? I think we can learn as much from them about what they're not singing as we can from what they are singing. These people have literally lived through hell on earth. They've been persecuted and martyred for the cause of Christ. They've persevered to the end. Revelation 12 said that they did not love their lives to the death. They saw terrible things and experienced terrible things. And in their song, there are no lies. Why, God, did you let this happen to us? Why, God, if you're loving, did you do it this way? Why? We don't find any of that. Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. God Almighty is only used one other time in the New Testament. It's used nine times in Revelation. The other one's found in 2 Corinthians. God Almighty. It's used many times in the Old Testament. Great and marvelous are your works. And this chapter, chapter 15, contains the only two times the phrase great and marvelous is used in Revelation. That's verses 1 and 3 of chapter 15. Great and marvelous are your works. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. No complaints, only praise. Because I suspect that on that side of life and on that side of our experiences, we'll have some level of hindsight. You know, even now on earth, we can sometimes look back on experiences and trials that we've been put through and we realize, oh, that's why I had to go through that. Some piece of you was refined some piece of you became more like Christ. Oh my goodness. I could not see that when I was in the midst of that trial, but now on the other side, I can see. And that doesn't always happen. You won't always know why you go through things. But sometimes we get a brief insight. Just and true are your ways. They realize This is the way to do it. The way that God has chosen to bring tribulation, an hour of trial on the earth, that's the way to do it. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? Our country and truthfully, our world, suffers from a lack of fear towards God. If we collectively feared God to the extent that we should, I can promise you we wouldn't see the crime rates we see. We wouldn't see the human trafficking, the immorality, or in general, the disrespect of God's children. If we all just feared God the way we should, Proverbs 9 says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And Proverbs 10 says the fear of the Lord prolongs days, but the years of the wicked will be shortened. And in the not-so-distant future, everyone will fear the Lord 
by one means or another, and everyone will glorify his name. They sing, for you alone are holy. And isn't that what makes him holy? He's set apart. There is none that stands beside him. You alone are holy. If there were another like him, he wouldn't be holy and set apart. But he stands alone in his glory and his holiness. For all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. Do all nations worship before him today? Absolutely not. This is not talking about today. I believe this is a clear reference to the kingdom age when Christ will rule and will have the worship that is due him. For your judgments have been manifested. And the kingdom age comes after this fullness of God's wrath is poured out onto an unbelieving world. They're singing in the past tense. Your judgments have been, in the past, manifested. This song is sung after the bowls are poured out. His judgments will have already been made known. Now, this song of Moses and song of the Lamb, scholars will debate whether this is one song or two. Um, I'm counting two, Moses and the Lamb. So that's what we're going to go with. Um, I don't think there's much sense in honestly wasting time over that. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. The song of Moses is found in Exodus 15. This is the first song recorded in the Bible. It's a song of triumph over Pharaoh in Egypt. It's a song that deals with God's ability to bring his people out. Now, I want you to contrast that with the song of the Lamb, which is what we're seeing here. The song of the Lamb has to do with triumph over the beast. It's the last song recorded in the Bible. And it deals with God's ability to bring his people in, not out. Song of Moses, Exodus 15, deals with the triumph over Pharaoh in Egypt. Song of the Lamb, Revelation 15, deals with the triumph over the beast. Song of Moses is the first song in the Bible. Song of the Lamb is the last song in the Bible. Song of Moses deals with God's ability to bring his people out. The Song of the Lamb deals with God's ability to bring his people in. The Song of Moses and the Song of the Lamb. And there are several great points that are made in this song. The Lord's works are great, marvelous, just, and true. The Lord should be feared, and that is reverenced, respected. God is holy. All nations will worship God Almighty, and his judgments will be made. Verse 5, John says, after these things, I looked, and behold, that is, and woe, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. There are two key words in that sentence that we need to pay attention to. Which two words are those? In heaven. After these things I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. This is not the earthly tabernacle or the earthly temple. We are, well, 
we are, through John's eyes, getting a sneak peek behind the veil. This is the actual temple that the earthly temple was modeled after. And the language used in this verse is even more specific and awe-inspiring than it first seems to be. The word translated as temple is naos. This word is used for any holy place in general, but when it's followed with of the tabernacle of the testimony, it seems to reference the holy of holies. This is the place in the tabernacle where the ark of the testimony was kept. This is, case in translation here, the holy place of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven. That is the heavenly holy of holies. God resides there. It was opened for John to look into. That's remarkable. The actual most holy place of heaven was opened up for John to see. And he wrote it down, and we have it today. God has preserved this for us. After these things I behold and looked, I looked and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. Verse 6, And out of the temple came the seven angels, having the seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen, and having their chests girded with golden bands. Clothed in pure, bright linen. That word bright is lampros. It's a radiant, gorgeous white. It's shining. And this word is used to describe the appearance of crystal in other passages and the appearance of fine garments, which is how it's used here. These angels are described as being clothed in this bright material. In other places in the Bible, um, lempros is translated as fine, fine linen or fine garments, fine robes. Um, So it has this idea of elegance, of majesty, pure, bright linen, and having their chests girded with golden bands. This seems to be in the likeness of Christ. If you remember many, many months ago in Revelation 1, when we went through that chapter, verse 13 described Christ in his glorified state as being, quote, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. So it seems that these angels are clothed in the likeness of Christ. And it makes sense because they are agents of Christ. They're acting on his behalf. Even down here, If somebody is working for the government, they'll wear a garment, a jacket, or a hat. It'll say FBI on it. It's a marking that associates them with who they work for. It's the same with these guys. They're wearing a golden belt, basically, golden sash about the chest. And that is identifying them with Christ. They're acting on his behalf. Verse 7, then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. You'll see in the King James translation, these bowls are translated as vials. And all throughout chapter 16 as well, they use vial to translate this. That doesn't really bring up the correct picture in our minds today. Um, I actually don't know what connotation they would have had when the King James was translated, but the better translation today is bowls. And what this is, is basically a 
sensor or a broad, shallow dish. Not what we would think of as a vial, like a vial of poison. Think of a very small thing that probably has a cork in it. You know, this is a bowl, broad, shallow basin. And I can't even picture what a bowl filled with God's wrath would look like. I would imagine there would be some fire in there, something smoldering. But here they are, being passed from one of the living creatures we saw around the throne to each of these seven angels in heaven to be dispensed. And this may remind us of God's instruction to Aaron concerning the Day of Atonement. Let's go ahead and turn to Leviticus 16.12. Here you'll see God instructing Aaron to enter the most holy place with a censer. That's the same kind of bowl that's talked about in Revelation here. To enter the most holy place with a censer full of burning coals from the altar. There's something about a burning bowl of coals, again, fire being emblematic of judgment, and the most holy place. There's something about it. Aaron is instructed to carry in a bowl full of burning coals from the altar of the burnt offering when he goes into the most holy place on the day of atonement. And here in Revelation, the Holy of Holies is opened and the angels file out to receive these bowls full of the wrath of God. And I'm sure that that is represented by some kind of fire. Interesting, interesting picture that's painted here. And this wrath of God is the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. Christians living in the Roman Empire, especially the first century, were hit by intense bouts of persecution. But occasionally you'd have one of these emperors who brought persecution die, and the next would be nicer to Christians. There would be a reprieve of this persecution. Now, the men and women living under the beast system have blasphemed the name of a holy God. And there's no chance of there being another successor that will accept their sin. There's no chance. Because the guy in control lives forever and ever. The one who will bring judgment upon them lives forever and ever. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Verse 8 is profound. When the Ark of the Testimony was brought into Solomon's temple, and we can find this in 1 Kings 8.10, and that verse says, And it came to pass, when the priests came out of the holy place, that the cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not continue ministering because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Another instance where God's very presence, his holiness, emanated this cloud. And this cloud was so thick that the priests couldn't enter to carry out their ministry in the temple. And here in Revelation, right before the finality of judgment, the finality of wrath is poured out onto a world. God removes himself into his temple. And I believe we're still talking about 
the Holy of Holies here. He locks himself away. And I believe that he's brooding. He's brokenhearted at what has to happen. Make no mistake, it has to happen. There is no other way. And remember that this is the unbelieving world that we're dealing with now. We've come through time after time after time where God gives another chance. He gives the world another chance to accept what he's done for them and escape this wrath. But they are so hard-headed by this time. They do not accept what he's offering. He pulls away, seems to lock himself in the Holy of Holies until the finality of his wrath is finished. And it says that no one was able to enter the temple in heaven till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed, until these bold judgments are poured out onto the world. I think we can see his love coming out in this last verse of chapter 15. The Lord God Almighty, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the Holy One, is so brokenhearted for these people. And he is brokenhearted over your life. He doesn't want to see you cast away from him. He doesn't want that. It is his will that everyone should be saved. He wants to have a relationship with every human being whoever has and whoever will live. He wants that. But some of us don't want that. Too many people want to do it their own way, want to try to reach out to God when God has already reached down to them. They don't accept the way that he's made. They want to make their own way. And there is no other way but through Christ to come to the Father. Scripture tells us that the lake of fire was created for Satan and his angels. The lake of fire, the final resting place of unbelievers, was not created for humans. It was created to hold Satan and his angels. There's the popular image that Satan is ruling hell with his pitchfork, pointy tail. That is very false. Satan will be tormented there as every other creature will be. He is in no place to rule. That place was not created for you and I. There was a different place created for you and I. A home in heaven with the Father. If only we accept his gift, the way that he's chosen to reveal himself to us, to reveal his infinite love. Do not let another day pass if you are unsure of your eternal destiny. You need to leave knowing where you're going. Because there's two choices. And neglecting to make a choice is your choice. You can't keep pushing this off. Though I believe that people will continue to be saved 
into this tribulation period. There is no sense in waiting for that. You accept Christ today. You can get out of here. You can be sure of where you're going. If you hang around and you miss the boat, you're thrust into the tribulation. Being a believer during the tribulation means death. The system of the beast is so powerful and so overarching that he will have the ability to hunt down and kill believers who are not sealed in that group of 144,000 Jews. If you're a Gentile and you're a believer in Jesus Christ during the tribulation, you'll be hunted down. And the beasts, the Antichrist's preferred method of execution is beheading. Accept Christ. Take advantage of the way that was made. That's that fourth option that we talked about in the beginning. The first three aren't going to cut it for you or for God. Take the fourth option. God is brokenhearted over your life. And he wants a personal relationship with you through his son. That's what this whole narrative All of scripture points to Jesus Christ. Everything. You can find Jesus on every page of the Old Testament. It all points to him. It's all from him. He's the creator of all things, and it's all going back to him. He is the end of all things. The Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. Let's close our study in a word of prayer.